HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, a weekly conversation about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I am Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food, Law, and Policy at UCLA Law School, and we're broadcasting from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today in the studio is Jenna Liute as co-host. And today we're going to be talking about sugar. Americans have become more aware of our huge amounts of consumption of sugar, which is about 126 grams per day for the average American. I think that's uh, approximately 31 teaspoons, uh, according to data published in the Washington Post. And from the fight to reduce soda consumption to the Obama, Obama administration's push for an added sugars label on our food, there is a significant change in the policy conversation in an effort to reduce the overconsumption of sugar. Whether or not that effort would be successful is still to be determined. And one of the leading figures in this fight is our guest today, Dr. Robert H. Lustig. He is a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco, and he has both conducted research and spoken and written extensively on the effects of sugar and specifically fructose on our health. Good morning, Dr. Lustig, and welcome to the show. Hi, Kim. How are you? Jenna, nice to meet you. Glad to have you on. So we wanted to get started just hearing a little bit of how you got into this. Totally through the back door. Believe me, I had no agenda going in. Um, you know, I took care of short kids for 15 years, and then all of a sudden the short kids started getting fat to be fat kids. And um, I was at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where I was presented with a stable of patients who had survived their brain tumors uh, only to become massively obese. And I was charged with trying to figure out how to fix their problem. Uh, by going to the literature, we figured out that these patients weren't able to see their hormone leptin. Uh, leptin is a hormone that's made from your 
fat cells, goes to your brain and tells you you've had enough. These kids clearly, clearly were not interpreting that signal. They weren't seeing it because of the brain damage. We figured out that by using a medicine to get their insulin down, their insulin levels down, we were able to reverse the process. Then we started doing that in people who didn't have brain tumors, and lo and behold, the same thing happened. And more importantly, they stopped eating carbohydrate on a dime, which was really fascinating. Their protein and fat content of their diet stayed up. Like they weren't they, as interested in carbohydrate. They weren't as interested in carbohydrate. This was very interesting, said to us, gee, maybe insulin is the bad guy, and maybe things that make insulin go up are the you know, problems within our diet. Uh, so I want to I want to actually uh, understand even a little bit more the um, the background of that. So you said you were started out tra- taking care of short kids, and I think this has to do with you being an endocrinologist. Correct, of course. And, and even for people, just to back it up even more, what is an endocrinologist, yeah. and how does that tie into? Uh, sure, <laughs> we, we need a science lesson here. Certainly, um, an endocrinologist is a doctor who studies hormones and glands. I happen to be a pediatric endocrinologist, so I do it in children. And I happen to be a neuroendocrinologist, so I'm particularly interested in how the brain controls hormones and how hormones control the brain. And the quintessential problem patient for me is a patient with a brain tumor because they, their hypothalamus, the area of the brain that controls all of these hormonal releases, is clearly damaged. And so they suffer all the uh, ravages of what we call hypopituitarism and even something called diabetes insipidus, where they can't hold on to water. So they're pretty sick, and it's my job to make them better. Uh, Well, the fact is they were getting fatter and fatter and fatter, and, uh, you know, we needed to do something about it. It had been shown years before by George Bray, one of the fathers of obesity research, that you could take these kids, lock them up on a, a clinical ward in a hospital, and feed them 500 calories a day, and they would still gain weight because they would rather store it than burn it. And when your insulin is high, you would rather store it than burn it. Well, it turns out all of our insulins are two to four times higher today than they were 40 years ago. And the question is, what happened to our environment to make this change in the amount of insulin that we release and whether or not we respond to it? And I can sum that up in one word. Sure. I think we know yeah, it. I think, I think, <laughs> is it sugar? <laughs> so, um, in what in what quantity have you so have you found sugar to be detrimental? So, the American Heart Association and now the World Health Organization has basically said about six teaspoons per day of added sugar for women, maybe up to nine teaspoons of added sugar per, per day for men. And for children, it's supposed to be three to four teaspoons of added sugar per day. The problem is that the median sugar consumption in the United States is currently 19.5. So everyone is triple overdosed, and kids are sextuple overdosed. And, and it, those, that has consequences. Is that because, you know, we're eating like 12 candy bars a day or drinking drinking soda or is that just because sugar is sort of ubiquitous in our in our food supply half of the sugar that we consume is in the foods we know have it like soda candy ice cream mm-hmm. half the other half is in foods we didn't know had it like salad dressing yogurt barbecue sauce tomato sauce uh, chicken uh, and and the Chick- list goes chicken. on 
Uh, so it's a it's it's been it's bred it's found everywhere and it's put there very specifically by the food industry ostensibly as a um, um, preservative and, and method to increase shelf life and I can explain why in a moment but the fact is they've really put it in there because they know when they add it you buy more is all sugar created equal so is is the way you know when we're when you're talking about sugar in the food supply that we don't necessarily know um is there is that does your body process that the same way that it processes corn syrup that it processes sugar found in fruit for instance so fruit is different and the reason fruit is different is because fruit has fiber okay the fiber in the fruit mitigates the negative effects because the fiber acts uh, inside your intestine to form a gel, a whitish gel, and you can actually see it on electron microscopy inside the intestine. And it acts as a secondary barrier that reduces the rate of absorption of sugar so that your liver doesn't get overwhelmed. And it reduces the amount of sugar absorbed so that some of it will go down further down your intestine where the intestinal bacteria, your microbiome, will chew it up instead of you getting it, in which huh. case you actually got a lower dose. In addition, the fiber also moves the food through the intestine faster. It increases intestinal transit so that you get the satiety signal sooner so that you don't consume that second portion. So fiber is the antidote to sugar. The problem is processed food is fiberless food. And what is the, and the connection is that if you don't, if the sugar doesn't move through the system in that way, not being absorbed, and it does end up being absorbed and affecting your liver, that's yep. where you get the insulin Spike. Right, exactly. We've now shown that fatty liver disease, which is rampant in the United States, it's now at 33% of all Americans have fatty liver disease. 45% of Latinos, 25% of African Americans, but 33% of the total population has fat in their liver. And when you have fat in your liver, your liver gets sick. When your liver gets sick, your pancreas which is in series with the liver, which drains right into the liver, has to make extra insulin to make the liver do its job. And that raises insulin levels all over the body, and that's what drives chronic metabolic disease. We just had a paper last week that may, some of your uh, listeners may have seen, uh, got a lot of press, which shows that when we take the sugar out of kids' diets, their insulins fall by a third in just 10 days, and more importantly, their liver fat turns around completely. So I was going to ask you about the paper because uh, it it um, seems optimistic, you know, given the things that you're talking about and how alarming some of the statistics that you're sharing are. You know, this is something that seems to indicate it's possible to turn these things around. So I'm... It, it, you know, you can look at that paper in one of two ways, depending on, you know, what color glasses you've got. You could look at it as a very sad paper, like, oh, my God, this is why we're in this mess. Uh, or you can look at this as a very happy paper because we were able to improve children's metabolic health in just 10 days just by getting rid of the added sugar without even changing calories or weight. So I actually view that as a very positive thing. And what can you go into the a little bit more details of how the study was set up and how you evaluated the different kinds of um, where the calories came from? So we recruited 43 children from our clinic with metabolic syndrome, so obesity plus at least one other comorbidity, so high triglycerides, liver, fat, fatty liver, high blood glucose, etc. Um, we then did a lot of food frequency questionnaires 
and a lot of discussion to try to get to exactly what the children were eating at home. Now, we always know that kids lie about their sugar consumption. Every single study that's looked at, you know, um, uh, verbal recall versus actual consumption shows that everyone lies about their sugar consumption. It's kids and adults. Maybe adults, too, I was going to say. We know that. You know, that's old news. But what we did was we matched their consumption of protein and fat and total calories, um, uh, cal- uh, calorie for calorie, with a new diet that we supplied. So we delivered food to them every three days, just like Domino's. We, we delivered. Hmm. And we, uh, the experimental diet, which they consumed for nine days, uh, was matched to their fat uh, intake, their protein intake, and their total carbohydrate intake. But within carbohydrate, we took the sugar, the added sugar out, and we put starch in, since starch have, has the same caloric value as sugar. So we took the chicken teriyaki out, we put the to- turkey hot dogs in. We took the sweetened yogurt out, we put the baked potato chips in. Uh, we put, took the pastries out, we put the bagels in. You get the idea? Mm-hmm. So. And then we uh, fed them that new experimental diet, holding their weight constant for the next nine days. And then on day 10, we had them come back and we reassessed them with some very fancy uh, uh, analyses. And what we saw was that every aspect of their metabolic health improved in 10 days with no change in weight. Um, not to not to play. I'm just to play devil. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Forty three kids seems like a really small sample size. For instance, in clinical research, forty three kids is a large sample size. Okay, okay. And it was twenty seven Latino and sixteen African American kids. So it was a diverse. Most vulnerable. Right. So I would actually argue that that is a quite large sample size for this kind of study. And how do you respond in general to, say, um, some pushback, specifically probably from industry, um, that there is not enough of a, a bo- research to constitute a, an, a, quote, body of evidence to, to show, demonstrate that sugar has these negative health effects? Well, okay. So, you know, first of all, the sugar the food industry, you know, is trying to deep six this every which way. Um, the single uh, criticism that I do have to deal with mm-hmm. is that the study did not have an external control group. That is true. It did not. And we talked about it when we were designing the study. How would you design an external control group? Since everyone lies, you would have to then compose a study diet for these children that would be in the control group that would match the added sugar co- consumption that they had at home, but you don't know what it is because they all lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so no matter what they would have told us, we would have underdosed them, in which case then the control group wouldn't have been a control group. It would have been an experimental group. So it didn't make sense to do that. Also, we couldn't randomize them because you can't randomize people to a high-sugar diet and a low-sugar diet and have them not know what they're on unless you put nasogastric tubes down their nose and feed them into their stomach so that it bypasses their mouth. Well, no IRB is going to let you do that. So there really was no way to do a rational external control group, and we were aware of that. So what we did instead was we built five internal controls into the study to make sure that, number one, the investigators were not biased, and number two, that the data actually reflected what happened metabolically. And I can go through
through those if, with you if you want, but the bottom line is the st- study was very well controlled, just internally, not externally. The food industry is harping on the external control because that's the only thing they can ultimately find fault with. So oh, I think we're going to take a short break and then come back and talk more generally about the food industry and what policy and other kinds of changes we can all make around this. We'll be back in a minute. on Eating Matters with Dr. Robert Lustig. We're talking today about sugar and its contributions to the abundance of diet-related disease and dietary challenges in America. Um, So I wanted to ask you about, you know, you have talked generally about processed food, but I think your your public reputation is definitely most associated with sugar as being something you really want to put a focus on. What are the, is there a concern about elevating one ingredient, you know, and we've certainly seen what happened with the demonization of carbs. Um, I was in high school during the fat-free era and had a snack wells were a big oh, part I? of my <laughs> um, snack wells. First, first of all, first of all, I actually would argue that I'm not focusing on sugar. I'm focusing on processed food in general. It's just that for the other things that are in processed food, we don't have causational data. We only have correlational data. For Sugar, we actually have causational data, and it's for that reason, it's the marker for processed food, and it's also the fulcrum by which we can actually move away from processed food and toward real food. So it's not that I'm harping on a single nutrient. I'm actually harping on the food system because the food system are, you know, currently provides basically um, death-dealing uh, uh, drugs to us. And uh, that's just not acceptable. When you take the sugar out of the food, it's going to, the processed food's going to taste horrible, and people will revolt. The bottom line is there's no reason we can't bring real food to people, and there are public policy measures that could do that if we chose to. But it means a real overhaul of what we're currently doing today. For instance, subsidies have to be completely uh, overhauled, really, I think, uh, gotten rid of, let the markets work. Uh, you know, the fact that we are, you know, the, the four things that are the worst for us, corn, wheat, soy, and sugar, uh, are the things that we subsidize. And all the things that are actually good for us are twice as expensive, if not more, 
uh, makes this an impossible situation for everybody. So uh, what, do you, what do you think are some of the more promising specific um, policy interventions? And maybe we can start with the possibility of the added sugars label. Right. So I personally am for that, uh, for obvious reasons. I think that people need to know what they're consuming. Why, why is it that we don't have added sugars on the label? Well, the food industry says there's no difference between the exo- endogenous sugar and the exogenous sugar, and that's a complete falsehood. There's a big difference. Number one, the endogenous sugar might be lactose what, what? or glucose, which is not a problem, or it may be sucrose, which was added, or high fructose corn syrup, which is a problem. Uh, secondly, and, uh, and Jack Dolistic, if you are explaining that to your patients or to a, a classroom full of kids and parents, how do you explain that? Meaning, like, what's what is you know glucose versus right. dairy so based sugar? What we tell them is that milk sugar is uh, you know every every sugar is really two molecules uh, combined together. So, for instance, maltose is glucose plus glucose. Lactose is glucose plus galactose, which is what's found in milk. And sucrose is glucose plus fructose. So the fructose is the molecule that causes the problems because only the liver can metabolize fructose. And when you overwhelm your liver with fructose, it has no choice but to turn the excess into liver fat. And that's where the disease comes from. So anything that has added sugar means sucrose because you don't add the others. So if it says added sugar, that means it's sucrose or high fructose corn syrup. And that means it's to be uh, limited and uh, watched. And you can't watch it if you don't know what's added. So the perfect example of this is yogurt. So how many grams in a standard plain yogurt? About seven grams, all lactose, no problem. How many grams of sugar in a pomegranate yogurt? 19 grams. So that means that when you consume a pomegranate yogurt, you're consuming a plain yogurt plus a bowl of Cap'n Crunch. Right. Now, you should know that. You should be allowed to know that. In addition, there's no percent daily value. There's no RDA, recommended dietary allowance for sugar. That column where the percentages are is absolutely empty. And we need a number to be put there because if a number was put there, Breakfast cereal would disappear from the planet in a nanosecond. What do you think of the the DGA's recommended um, 10% of your total daily caloric intake? And that's the dietary guidelines. Yeah. Right. Proposed dietary guidelines. You you should know that the World Health Organization had originally put out a uh, decision to make it 5% of total calories. They then went back on that because the data on 5% was for prevention of dental caries, which is a huge problem around the world. It's a huge problem here, too. Don't get me wrong. But from a metabolic standpoint, it looks like your liver probably can manage up to 10% of calories as added sugar. So they went with 10%. You know, it's a baby step. Mm-hmm. But it's at least a step in the right direction. Do I, I think that 10% is too high? Yeah, I think it is a little too high, but it's a hell of a lot closer than having nothing. Right. And I think that, and the added sugars piece, I, you know, both from a, myself personally, both from a policy perspective and just as a mom, I feel like because of the various names of sugars that you can have concentrate, juice concentrates, fruit concentrates, all of these kinds of things that sort of amount to an added sugar it would really make a huge difference for being Absolutely. able to navigate purchasing. But yet there there have been studies that show that, um, and this is, I know the industry's big pushback, that 
including the added sugar label, um, causes more confusion among consumers. So, I mean, what do you, what do no, you say in response it, well, to I that? Well, I think part of the reason they say it causes confusion is because they're actually generating the confusion. <laughs> All right? I think that that's exactly the problem. Let me give you an example of why we have a problem here. Diabetics measure their blood sugar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wrong. They measure their blood glucose. <laughs> back that was to, a trick. Yeah, that was a trick. Back to the back to the science lesson that we we asked for earlier. <laughs> okay, dietary sugar means a lot of things to different people. You know, I, what we're really talking about is sucrose, you know, or high fructose corn syrup. And so, what we really need to do is you say the words we mean. People say sugar is necessary for life. No, it isn't. Glucose is necessary for life not sugar. Glucose is necessary for life, yet glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body will make it. So even though it's a nutrient, it is not an essential nutrient because if you don't consume it, you will make it anyway. So, you know, these concepts, these myths about what sugar is, what dietary sugar is versus what blood sugar is, which we should never call blood sugar, it should be called blood glucose, you know, is part of the reason that everyone is confused. But not to put added sugar on the label because we have this confusion that the food industry conjured up itself is, uh, you know, that's just basically uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So in the last uh, few minutes that we have, I do want to hear a little bit more about your own experience being at the forefront of this um, and how you navigate this in your personal life as well. So, uh, you know, just for you personally, I mean, since this video, this lecture that you gave, a 90-minute lecture in 2009, and it's been viewed more than 6 million times, and I think because of your writing and your appearance in documentaries, you've really been a publicly visible figure um, in this in this discussion around what our food policy should be. And I'm curious to hear from you, you know, what how has your own day-to-day life changed since you've taken that step from your clinical practice and kind of into the public debate around these issues? Right. So, well, from, from a personal standpoint, um, we and my family understand this very well. My kids know what these things are, what these issues are. And so, you know, on weeknights, uh, if they want dessert, it's fruit. On weekends, if they want something a little bit more elaborate, we can do that. My wife is Norwegian. She bakes. I can't stop her. It's like therapy for her. And um, she has learned that she can doctor any dessert recipe to provide one-third less sugar than the recipe calls for, and it actually comes out tasting better because you can taste the oatmeal, the chocolate, the nuts. Well, even oatmeal. So before when you were talking about the importance of fiber and sugar, I was thinking about that actually with regard to baked goods. So. Right. Is that meaningful if you have, if you're cooking with whole wheat, you know, in your opinion, if you're cooking with whole wheat flour? Well, first of all, whole wheat flour is no different from regular flour. Once you've um, damaged the husk, the kernel, the, um, you know, the bran, um, it really doesn't matter because the starch is out. So whole grain bread makes much more sense because the fiber is, re- remains intact. Same thing for fruit. You know, juicing fruit destroys the insoluble fiber. So, you know, eat the fruit, don't drink the juice. Um, But, you know, from my standpoint, you know, what's happened to me is that uh, I now uh, can't get dessert out because everyone has an iPhone. (laughs) 
Right, right, right. <laughs> right. You know and, do, and, and I mean, what about having this dimension of your life that is so much more political than maybe you anticipated yes, heading I, into a medical I, career? Well, I will tell you that I wanted to enter the policy arena. Unfortunately, what has happened is because of media, which we need in order to get the message out, it's become much more of an advocacy role than a policy role. But we are doing policy as well. Uh, the, you know, I, I, it's about the message, not the messenger. Uh, you know, I really do not care if anybody knows my name. I just want them to look at a bottle of, you know, any soft drink and say, do I really need this? Ultimately, what I want to see is a cultural tectonic shift in America over the next 15 years. Over the last 30 years, we've had four cultural tectonic shifts. Condoms and bathrooms, seatbelts and bicycle helmets, uh, drunk driving, and smoking in public places. Thirty years ago, all of those were standard fare for Americans, and today every one of those are anathema. And, you know, what happened? Well, what happened was that we had public education, and we had government uh, uh, buying in to these changes, and we started seeing legislation and even litigation on some of these to ultimately change the public perception. That is what has to happen here, and it has to start at some time, I think. We've started. So my hope is 15 years from now, you'll walk down the street, see somebody drinking a can of soda, and feel sorry for them. What would you say, just just quickly, to, to um, some of the people who might say, well, it's going to be a slippery slope if you start to add a, a one cent per ounce tax on soda. Now you're going to turn around and you know candy bars will be banned from the food system well i mean it uh, seems hyperbolic but but i i have heard yeah that. it is a little hyperbolic and i don't think that's what's going to happen at all uh, i don't necessarily issue candy bars and i think that everyone's allowed a sweet treat you know look i'm i'm for dessert right me too for dessert <laughs> i'm just not for dessert for breakfast lunch dinner and snacks absolutely so i'm not so worried about the candy bar because we know that has added sugar. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's like putting you know one lump or two in your coffee, because you did it. Right. You knew what you were doing, and it was a conscious decision. What I'm trying to fix is the surreptitious addition of sugar and other foodstuffs to our food supply without our knowledge and without our consent. And I think we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us, Dr. Lustig. I appreciate it. Um, Our show is produced by Jenna Liute and myself, and our intern is Austin Brunierski. Show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our sponsors and our show engineer today, Jack Inslee. The show is available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast at iTunes and Stitcher. If you liked what you heard, please consider supporting the network, Heritage Radio Network. And you can also find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.